This evening, I'd like to continue on the theme of the summer, at least of the last weeks that I've been here, which speaks of simplicity and presence, a kind of aliveness that it's possible to find only when we are present in the in the reality of the present, in the present moment, and that this quality of mindful presence is the gateway to freedom. I'd like to speak of this quality of simplicity and sympathy. Um, before I do, I know last week that Nina Wise came to speak. I believe it was last week. Um, and um, how was that? She's, she's great, huh? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, she's a... Uh, a, a really remarkable teacher. I'm very grateful that she can come as well. So I'm just back while Nina was here with you. I was um, up in the Sierras at family camp with my three brothers and their wives and oh, there were about and a bunch of kids or 14 of us along with lots of other people and it was good and it was tiring the way families are, you know. And I got back here in Spirit Rock, just finished its um, family retreat as well, and the staff that I ran into were both happy and exhausted, <laughs> some combination. Um, so um, for this evening, um, this quality, again, to come back to of simplicity um, and sympathy, um, start with a few lines from Walt Whitman where he writes, and I or you, pocketless of a dime, may purchase the pick of the earth, and I find letters from the divine dropped in the street and every one assigned by God's name, and to glance with an eye or show a bean in its pod confounds the learning of all times, and there is no trade or employment but the young man following it may become a hero, and whoever walks a furlong without sympathy walks to his own funeral dressed in his shroud. So he's speaking of the, the amazingness of the universe. Um, and without sympathy, we lose touch with that amazing quality. Being up in the Sierras at this family camp, one of the things that's there is there's a big lake for swimming. Um, and the little kids are, 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 spend a lot of their time with dip nets along the edge of the lake frogging, mostly trying to catch tadpoles, which they put in their buckets, um, and uh, <clears throat> which has been going on since the camp has been there. These great big, huge polywogs that are sort of half like frogs, and it's been happening so long that I think it's actually part of the life cycle of frogs now, <laughs> that they become eggs, and then they become little polywogs and big polywogs and start to have their feet, and then they spend time in a kid's net and in some bucket for a while being poked and prodded, and then they go back in the lake and turn into a frog. <laughs> but the problem was that, as one might expect, some of the little kids were not being careful enough with their polywogs, and so some of them were being left out without water and so forth, and they died. So one night when the staff gathered with the, all the people at the camp, this young woman who was on the staff stood up and said, I'm a Buddhist, and there is a new rule in this camp because I'm concerned about the polywogs that are dying and I don't want them to be killed. So listen up, you little kids. Here is the rule. If you kill it, 
you eat it. <laughs> it saved the lives of a lot of polywogs. <laughs> and in it, there was, there was actually, it was quite good teaching, because it was both sympathetic and also very realistic. <laughs> I remember my teacher, Ajahn Chah, um, the forest monastery where we lived um, had a lot of wildlife. It was really a tropical jungle, and um, there were snakes, including cobras. And seeing big cobras crossing the paths near my cottage coming out of the jungle and so forth. And somebody would go and say, oh, I saw a big cobra today. And he would smile and say, oh, yeah, there's cobras at that end of the monastery, and then there's cobras at the other end. Um, and he would say, actually, meditation practice, spiritual practice, is a little bit like living with cobras, isn't it? Um, whether it's in the monastery or in the lives that we live. And then he would look and he'd say, so how do you find peace? How do you find serenity, um, given the fact that your life is also with cobras? Um, because they can come out at any moment. Life is really unexpected. So where do you find serenity? You find the peace or the serenity in what Alan Watts' phrase, uh, in what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity. Not the wisdom that tries to make some uh, forest where there are no cobras or make some house or some relationship or some circumstance in your life where there is no danger and where things don't change. Because such a thing doesn't exist. Instead, to live with the cobras or to live with the difficulties of life, you need to bring your attention, and you also need to bring respect, like to the polywogs, to make your peace with the way life is, to live in the reality of the present, to bring a mindful awareness to what is actually so. Cobras, poison, yes, but also cobras are part of the flora and fauna. And only then can you find serenity. In the residential retreats that we have here, and that I've taught for many, many years, um, we have I interviews where we talk about, individually, <clears throat> with people who are practicing on retreat, we talk about meditation, <clears throat> what's happening for them and what comes up, and how to work with it. And a lot of the interviews that um, I remember and undertake <clears throat> or what I might call reassurance interviews. Um, the basic message is that you can do it. There you're sitting by yourself without any distractions, and your body hurts because it carries tension or pain that collects when we're not so mindful. And then you come to a retreat and sit quietly, and all the tension that we carry in our jaw or our neck or our back or whatever, it reveals itself, it shows itself, and the body will hurt. Or maybe it's the emotional pain that will come up because you finally let yourself sit still. And there is the grief that hasn't been felt because we've been too busy. The tears or the sense of inadequacy or the other kinds of fear or terror we carry. Or maybe it's our love or our hopes or our creativity. Or, or maybe it's the trauma that blocks our creativity. All of it shows itself when we make the space of attention to begin to listen.
but it's not easy necessarily. Yet the Buddha says at one point, if it were not possible to free the heart from entanglement and greed, hatred and delusion, I would not teach you to do so. It actually is possible. And so what happens in a reassurance interview, if you will, is someone will come in and say, I am freaking out in some fashion or other. I say, oh, that's good. Show me. You know, what is it like? Tell me how big is it? How bad is it? You know, is it this kind of freaking out or is it that kind or is it both of those together? Um, and what we do together is give it voice, give it words, um, allow it to be present and discover that it's possible to meet that difficulty with openness and compassion. That we human beings have this capacity. O nobly born, it says in the first lines of a number of great Buddhist texts speaking to you. O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember who you really are. Remember your true nature. Remember to rest in the great wakefulness, the great heart of compassion that is there within you to be touched, to be open to at any time. And this seed of your own Buddha nature, this possibility that you and I and every being can awaken, can be present, can be compassion, compassionate, is in every being, even in the worst, even in the dictators and tyrants, there'll be some place where maybe they love their own children or they love something, that it's, it's there in every being. And so we're invited in spiritual practice not to turn away from the cobras or the difficulties of the world or the struggles of the pollywogs or whatever it happens to be, but to see things as they are and to meet them with the great heart of a Buddha. Now as I continue to speak this evening, um, I would like to draw on a number of stories and in a way, um, it's kind of an homage, if you will, to um, Pema Chodron's uh, new book, which is entitled The Places That Scare You, that's just come out, A Guide to Fearlessness in Difficult Times. And she's authored a number of wonderful books, uh, When Things Fall Apart and Start Where You Are. And she is both a, a friend and somebody whose teachings I admire greatly and resonate a lot with. She was quite close to Chogyam Trumper Rinpoche and I've known her for years and she's the abbot of the first um, major Tibetan Buddhist monastery in North America run by Westerners. Um, and her teachings express wisdom in a, such a direct and simple and sympathetic way. Uh, I'd certainly recommend this book to you. Um, so I'll draw on some of her stories if I might. She begins actually with this simple story where she says, when I was about six years old, I received the essential teachings of the Buddha nature from an old woman sitting in the sun. I was walking by her house one day, feeling lonely, unloved, and mad, kicking anything I could find. Laughing, she said to me, little girl, don't you, get in, don't you go letting life harden your heart. That was her instructions to me right there I received the instructions of the Buddha. 
We can let the circumstances of our life harden us so that we become increasingly resentful and afraid, or we can let them soften us and make us kinder and more open even to what scares us. This is the path of liberation. So it's the same quality, the capacity to be present for life as it is, that is our own true nature. Now as we honestly and deeply pay attention, which is all that the Buddha asks of anyone on the path, in our sitting, our walking, in our life and relationships, we will see the eight worldly winds that blow constantly. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. Talked about them the last time I was teaching in here. Anybody not have that? Please raise your hand. I'd like to meet this person. This is the way it goes, praise and blame. Anybody not have blame? Not have praise? Well, some people's hands will go up, I know. It's tough. <laughs> so what do we do with pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame? Fame and disrepute. Two strategies. One is to close, to ignore it, to deny, to be fearful, to harden, to struggle. The other is to bow to it, to soften, to meet the joys and the sorrows of our experience with compassion, with the heart of a Buddha. Because whether we like it or not, it is true that everything changes. It is also true that suffering is woven into the fabric of human incarnation. The incarnation that we took birth into has pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, light and dark. It's part of it. The truth is that we cannot possess or own or control really hardly anything. Even your own thoughts, you say, stop thinking that. Does it listen? Right? How about other people? Try them. See how far your control goes. Sometimes we mistake pleasure for happiness. Pleasure is fine. Pleasure is okay. It's just not the same as happiness. I mean, we get the mistaken idea that if we get enough pleasure that that will make us happy. You know, getting up in the morning and have a wonderful um, croissant and a good latte, you know, good, the best breads that now San Francisco and Marin, all these European breads that are now available thought the Europeans had happiness. Now we have it in San Francisco, right? <laughs> and then you have a good game of tennis and you go to the, you know, you work and you have a creative and successful and money-making day and you go out to a wonderful dinner and, you know, you go for a run by the ocean and you watch a beautiful sunset and you have a great bottle of wine and watch a great movie and have terrific sex and stay up really late, you know. And then you get up in the morning and you start to do that all over again, right? And after a while, you know what you get? Tired. That's what you <laughs> It's okay for a while. But you can be kind of like a moth to a flame. You can be going for something that in the end doesn't really fulfill the heart because you can't sustain it. You can't keep it up. Pema talks about finding happiness without a hangover. What is the real happiness, right? <laughs> And that's not the happiness that's based on grasping. 
but it's the happiness based on the openness of the heart. We need to acknowledge, along with the pleasures of life, that there are, that we can appreciate when they're here. We also need to acknowledge the fact that sometimes our life is quite hard, and that that sorrow, struggle, suffering, difficulty needs to be met with sympathy, with compassion. We need to learn to bow to the difficulties of our life, because everyone has them. There's not a human being who doesn't have that. And if they look, you know, on the cover of that glamorous magazine or whatever, like they don't, it's just that particular moment, you know, that the photographer caught that looks pretty good. And they may have their moments of pleasure, as we do, but it's part of every human life to also struggle. A poem from Alison Luderman, who's my newest favorite poet, lives in um, Oakland and her her latest book is called The Largest Possible Life. So this is one of her poems, or a part of it, called Invisible Work. Because no one could ever praise me enough, because I don't mean these poems only, but the unseen, unbelievable effort it takes to live the life that goes on between them. I think all the time about invisible work, about the young mother on welfare I interviewed years ago who said, it's hard. You bring him to the park, run rings around yourself keeping him safe, cut hot dogs into bite-sized pieces for dinner, and there's no one to say what a good job you're doing, how you were patient and loving for the thousandth time even though you had a headache and a broken heart. And I, who am used to feeling lonely and sorry for myself, when all the while, as the Ojibwe poem says, I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. I touch that invisible work that stitches up the world and know that the work of my heart is the work of the world's heart. There is no other art. So even though nobody will say, you did a good job, I mean, we wait for that sometimes, or you did so much, so well, um, we all struggle. And then it becomes time for us to say it to ourselves. So sometimes our life is really hard, and the only thing we can do is hold it in compassion, the only sane thing. Sometimes our life has periods where it's not so hard, where it's nourishing and blessed and beautiful, which also should be relished and enjoyed. But even in that, there is the knowledge of others' lives that we carry, of the injustice in the world, of the hunger, of the racism that's still so prevalent in our society and world, of the conflict and the wars, Afghanistan or Burma or Zimbabwe or Ireland, or Israel and Palestine, breaks your heart, every one of them, no matter how good a day you're having. And that's there in us. We carry it because it's not really them, is it? This again from Emma. She writes, A young woman wrote a letter to me about finding herself in a small town in the Middle East 
surrounded by people yelling, jeering, and threatening to throw stones at her and her friends because they were Americans. Of course, she was terrified, and what happened to her was quite interesting. Suddenly, she identified with every person throughout history who has ever been scorned and hated. She understood what it was like to be despised for any reason, ethnic group, racial background, sexual preference, gender. Something cracked wide open, and she stood in the shoes of millions of oppressed people and saw with a new perspective. She even, underst well, she even understood her short, shared humanity with those who hated her. This sense of deep connection, of belonging to the same family, family is the awakening of the Buddha nature, and it is this that brings the heart to freedom. So whether it's in ourselves that we bow to, or in others, and who's going to get out of this predicament of human life? How do we get out of it? Who's going to help us get out of it? You know, sometimes we kind of want the mother bird to come and feed us and rescue us and care for us right in our little nests that we've made. And we feel like these raw little featherless creatures that are told that we're supposed to fly, but it's not really, t I can't be time for me yet. I need to be fed and cared for more. And, desperate little chick that I am, you know. <laughs> and we have to touch that human reality with compassion, with loving kindness. And when we do, there comes a magical shift of identity. Because not only are we the little frightened chick, but also something in us knows how to care for the chicks. We are also the father or the mother bird that feeds and protects. We know how to do that. Each one of us knows how to do that. And we're also the fearless part of that mother or father bird that pushes the little you know, kid out of the nest. Okay, you know, you may not think it's time, but you got wings and it's time to try them out. Out you go. We also know that in us. We have all of these in our own heart. Spiritual practice is, in its essence, so simple. Can we be present for this world as it is? And I don't mean in this acceptance that we don't struggle against the suffering of others or fight when there is injustice and we can make a difference. But nobody's going to change this human realm so that it won't have joy and sorrow and birth and death and praise and blame and gain and loss. We can do what we can, but this is the way the human realm is. And to awaken so that we are really free and effective and alive, we need so much compassion for ourselves and all beings, because this is the way the human realm is indeed. One form of compassion, practice, we start with ourselves, hold ourselves as if we were a frightened child, or bring into consciousness all the fears and loneliness and abandonment and trauma and pain that we've experienced. And then systematically hold them with some prayer. May I be free from suffering. 
May I meet the sorrows with compassion over and over. And then we might picture loved ones or others who we care about. Neutral people. Neutral people are always so interesting because there are all these neutral people out there. Neutral people means, you know, the person that you see at the gas station periodically or the person, you know, that you encounter at the supermarket regularly that you really don't pay any attention to. And you pick somebody like that and you do your compassion meditation for this neutral person for a while. Um, And all of a sudden you begin to realize, my God, the world is filled with neutral people and I've been forgetting them. Um, And you do it more. May they be free from suffering. May they hold their suffering in compassion. May they be well, whatever kind of prayers or intentions are part of your meditation of the heart. And then someday you go down to the supermarket and you look up and there's your neutral person and you look and you're in love with them. You know, oh, may you be well. May you be free from suffering. You so feel so connected. You've never even talked to this person, right? You don't even know their name. But there they are. Because you deliberately allowed this compassion that is there in each of us to open to them as well. You start with yourself, with loved ones, with other friends, with neutral people, then other categories, um, difficult people, enemies, then more broadly, men and women, far and near, animals, creatures, those yet to be born, this whole opening of the heart of compassion to embrace gradually with your breath and your heart's intention, all that lives. And gradually, the practice of compassion softens the heart and awakens this Buddha nature that can be present for human life as it is. Now, in another form of this compassion practice, in the form that Pema Chodron speaks about, Um, the form of healing is done to actually breathe in the pain and suffering, sorrow or anguish of other beings and breathe out the good wishes of forgiveness, of ease, of spaciousness. To touch life with compassion is to find freedom of the heart. Only when we do that can our heart be free. Otherwise, we're still caught. Without compassion, we can't be free. So again, a a little story. A woman who came to the Tibetan monastery for a retreat of this breath of compassion practice had suffered grave sexual abuse as a child from her father. She strongly identified with caged birds. She told me she often felt like a bird in a cage. During the compassion practice, she would breathe in the feeling of being small and caged, take her own suffering. And on the out-breath, she would open the door and let all the birds out, breath by breath. She did this for many days. Then one day, as she was sending and taking in this way, she experienced one of the birds flying out and landing on a man's shoulder that she imagined somewhere in front of her. Then the man turned around and she saw it was her father. And for the first time in her life, she was able to begin to forgive even him. Up at family camp, where I was with my brothers and 
family and so forth. Um, my twin brother's wife, Tori, has been a high school teacher for 25 years. Um, she loves teaching. She's a high school English teacher. But she really she loves literature. And more than that, she wants to, to use language and literature to awaken the minds and hearts of the students she teaches. And I think she's really a, a very good teacher, as she describes it, and a, a mentor for a, a lot of the kids. She has a wonderful kind of wry sense of humor and kind of cynicism that I think is very appealing to her high school students. <laughs> if you don't have some of that, you've never been in high school, of course. <laughs> anyway, um, and we were talking a lot about her work. And she said, too, that a lot of her work in addition to the awakening of their minds, is really the work of reassurance. It's just like the interviews that I talked about in meditation. She said, I'll have students come in, they're, you know, these beautiful, bright young men and women, and all of a sudden, for a year or two, the divorce year, or the divorce two years, their, their lives and their psyches and their hearts just fall apart. She said, I'm, I'll be out in the parking lot, and I, you know, I'll run into this young boy wandering around, say, what's the matter? Is something going on? He's been in my class. And he'll walk up to me and say, I don't know what day it is. I say, what do you mean? He says, well, I think I'm supposed to go to my dad's on Wednesday, but that's only on, you know, the first and third week of the month. Where am I, you know, where do I live? And you can just feel it's not just that he doesn't know where he is, but that he carries all the brokenness of the parents in his own heart. She talked about a young girl who was in her class named Jenny. And she said, Jenny seemed bright enough, um, but her, you know, she just didn't do the work and she was getting really low grades and just seemed so depressed. So I called her parents in. And it turned out that Jenny's mom had died five years before. And her, her dad had remarried this woman who had several children of her own. And when the stepmother and the dad came in, she said the dad was just sitting there with his head down, depressed, out of work, just unable to talk, really. And all the stepmom could do was talk about her other children and how Jenny could never fit in. What was her problem? Could the teacher figure it out? Went on and on and on like that. She said, and I felt so sorry for this girl. So the next day, I said, I talked to your stepmom, and I understand how bad it is. That's all she said. She said, in this girl's eyes, widened like, oh, somebody sees my life. And she said, then I told her to start to write, tell me, write instead of her papers, write what's going on. And she began to write her story. And it was incredible. And she went from D's to A's, you know. And then she said, I was out in the parking lot again after school. So yeah, it's high school teachers. Where do you go, right? <laughs> and, um... It was a cold day, really a kind of wintry day in New England, snowy. And I saw Jenny out there. She's kind of trudging along. And I opened my window and I said, I, do you need a ride? She said, yeah, I'm going to my after-school job. I said, fine, I'll take you in town, this restaurant. I took her to the restaurant and we walked and, I mean, sat in the car just it was a short ride. I let her out and before she got out of the car, she just turned and touched my arm and said, you know, Tori, I love you and just looked at me and then smiled and got out of the car. And Tori said it was so difficult because I'm not the one she should be saying that to. You know, she's not even in my class anymore and she's saying that to me. But I know this from the years now of work 
that I've done with Maladoma Somme, this wonderful African uh, medicine man and shaman, and Luis Rodriguez, a fantastic Latino poet and activist who works with youth gangs and so forth. I know that the young man that we work with, and that I'll be on retreat with next week, at some point, no matter how difficult their life has been, no matter how much suffering and struggle and loss and all of that, there will have been somebody who saw them. There will be a moment or a day, and it can be an uncle, it can be the custodian in the school, <clears throat> it can be a friend of the family. Somebody will have seen them and realized this is a beautiful being in here. And that moment can change their life because all of a sudden they remember who they are. They remember that they're worth something. And it's such a treasure. Spiritual practice invites us to do that for ourselves and for others. When you come and sit in meditation, even for this short, you know, 40 minutes sitting, not to speak of a day or a week or a month of our retreats, when you sit down as a human being, it's really kind of amazing. Because no matter what images you may have of yourself, they'll be broken, right? Because the mind is um, pretty much out of control, and it has no pride, and it will do anything. <laughs> it will. And you sit there, and it's not just those people, or that one, or the ones who are angry, or the ones who are sad, or the ones who are the victims, or the ones who are the abusers, and so forth. We have all of it in ourselves when you really listen, you feel that you've been it all. You've been the little chick, and you've been the mother or the father, and you've been the predator, and you've been the prey. As Eric Fromm writes, I believe that every man and woman represents humanity. We appear different as to intelligence or health, talents, yet we are all one. We are saints and sinners, adults and children. And no one is anyone superior or judge. We have all uh, been crucified with Christ and awakened with the Buddha. We have all walked with Gandhi and we have all killed and robbed with Genghis Khan and Stalin and Hitler. And today our life gives us a choice of what we will follow. All those possibilities within us. Another part of a poem from Alison Luderman, just a little bit of a, this poem, where she's writing to her ex-husband, and she says, I'm the same, you know. I want everything and the nothing it birthed out of, knowing, of course, I can't have anything unless I surrender attachments, as we've discussed many times, <laughs> which is tricky, somewhat akin to hiding the chocolate chips from yourself because you're on a diet. Meanwhile, only you know where the chips are hidden. <laughs> we can awaken because a part of us does know. My teacher called this the one who knows. And the one who knows in us is the place of wisdom and clarity 
and the compassionate heart of a Buddha. One famous Tibetan teacher, uh, um, Paitrul Rinpoche, um, used to tell a lot of stories. He kind of made up stories about this Geshe, this Tibetan Lama, who kind of illustrated how we discover these things in ourself. Um, and again, a, uh, so a story from Paitrul Rinpoche, um, we said Geshe Ben um, specialized in um, catching himself when he got caught in the world. So one day some patrons invited the Geshe down from his mountain cave to a house where they put on a big banquet because he was a famous teacher. And after the meal, he was a left, left alone in the room and there was a big bag of barley flour, which is kind of the staple food in Tibet. Without thinking, he put his cup in the bag and started to take some for his journey back. With his hand in the bag, he exclaimed, Ben, look at what you're doing. Then he shouted out, thief, thief. <laughs> the patrons rushed in to find him standing there, his hand in the flower yelling, I've caught him, I caught him, I caught the thief red-handed. <laughs> That's the true spirit of honesty and compassion. And it has to include a sense of humor, or it will never work. So we're the one that hides the chocolate chips and we know where they are and we're the thief. And you can never say, well, I did it and nobody was looking, right? Because there's always somebody looking, isn't there? So to find freedom, which is the game of spiritual life, to find freedom we need to be honest with ourselves, honest with the world. We need to be compassionate. So simple. The Dalai Lama likes to tell a story about mice. He's so interested in insects and mice and all the creatures of the world. He said, I've learned so much from ants about the paramita of patience, you know, and I've learned so much from the spiders about elegance, and I've learned so much from, uh, you know, um, all, the, all the little creatures. So one of his stories about, about mice is this. He said when he was a boy in Tibet, he used to try to catch mice, not to kill them, because he wanted to outsmart them. And he said that the mice in Tibet must be more clever than ordinary mice because he never succeeded in catching one. Instead, they became his models of enlightened conduct. He felt that unlike most of us, they had figured out that the best thing they could do for themselves was to refrain from the blindness of short-term pleasures of the cheese, he put out, in order to have the true freedom and long-term pleasure of being alive. Right? <laughs> he said, so my mentors, my benefactors were the mice who taught me freedom was the best thing of all. Compassion, presence, and a kind of curiosity. It's a wonderful thing when you're around the Dalai Lama because um, his... Uh, his mind and his spirit is so interested in whoever is in front of him wants to ask and know what is your life, what's your experience, what have you lived through. It's fantastic to have anybody pay that kind of attention to us and then to have it be the Dalai Lama. <laughs> oh my, ah, oh, the Dalai Lama. And he's very honest. Oh, I have my own troubles, he will say. <laughs> to see how it is, curious, honest, and most of all, compassionate with our own situation. 
Pema Chodron again writes about one of the worst periods in her own life. She said, where I lost my work, and then I lost the place that I was living, and I felt uncertain, and insecure, and groundless. And hoping that he would say something to help me work through these changes, I went to my teacher, Chogyam Trumpa, and complained about having trouble with all the transitions and all the loss in my life. He looked at me sort of blankly and he said, we're always in transition. And then he said, if you can just relax with that, you'll be okay. If you can relax with that, no problem. No problem. The practice is to trust. Not to trust that there won't be pain or loss, praise and blame, joy and sorrow. That's what will happen. But to trust and allow the heart to transform these sorrows and joys, this praise and blame, into the very place of awakening, into the food for the heart, into compassion. This is it. Because gain and loss and struggle and ease, even your failures, um, they're part of the game. They're part of spiritual life. Without them, we wouldn't really learn compassion. We need them. I mean, they're in the Hindu tradition, it's called grace, like in the Christian tradition. The grace of our sufferings. Because they bring us closer to, to our heart, closer to real compassion. They're what crack us open. They teach us mercy. Ramdas talks about it as heavy grace. Right? So one more story from Pema. She writes, once there was a cook at our monastery, Gampo Abbey, who was feeling very unhappy. Like most of us, she kept feeding the gloom <clears throat> with her actions and her thoughts. Hour by hour, day by day, her mood got darker. You know that cycle. She finally decided to ventilate her escalating emotion by baking chocolate chip cookies. This is real desperation, I can see. The plan backfired, however. She burned them all to a crisp. At that point, rather than dump the burned cookies in the garbage, she stuffed them into her pockets and backpack and went out for a walk. She trudged along the dirt road out in the countryside, her head hanging down, her mind burning with resentment, tears down her, streaming down her cheeks. She was saying to herself, so where's all this compassion and magic I keep hearing about in this Buddhist path? <laughs> At that moment, she looked up and there walking toward her was a small fox. Her mind stopped. She held her breath and watched. The fox sat down right in front of her, gazed up expectantly. She reached into her pockets and pulled out some cookies. The fox ate them and then slowly trotted away. She told this story to all of us at the retreat, saying, I learned today that life is precious. Even when we're determined to block the magic, it will find its way through and wake us up. The little fox taught me that no matter how shut down we get, we can always look outside our cocoon and connect with the heart of a Buddha no matter where we are. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you, Pema. Great stories.
see it with both simplicity and sympathy for all that arises. Um, so the chant tonight um, is this simple word, Namo. Um, for those who don't know, in uh, India when you meet someone, um, you put your hands together in greeting and bow to them and say Namaste, which means I bow to the divine within you, or maybe it means I see you, I see who you really are behind all that. Um, and the root of that word Namaste is Namo in Sanskrit or Pali, and it means to bow to, to honor. It starts many of the Buddhist texts, Namo Tatsa and so forth. And so we'll chant Namo together nine times as a way of bowing, and as you do, you can feel what wants to be bowed to in yourself and in the world around you, the joys and the sorrows and that which needs to be honored or cared for. And then we'll go out into the night. Namo 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 Add harmony Have a week of blessings ahead, and remember, little girl, little boy, don't you go letting life harden your heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.